you asked us to play a tune here, so to start with, so we'll play something called Polk County Breakdown. So. That was Pat and Possum, which is Charlie Walden and Pat Plunkett, uh, here with us today on the Agency Podcast. Welcome. All right. Well, we're glad to be here. Thank you. What can you, you tell us about that, too, Charlie? I don't know. Can you hear Pat okay? Where oh, she's yes, oh, yes. Yeah. No she problem. can move up next to me if she needs to. So. No, fantastic. Okay. You good. sound great. What can you tell us about the Polk County Breakdown? Okay, well, that's a tune. I grew up in Missouri and learned to play all my tunes there when I first started. And uh, so there was a guy down in the Ozarks, which is a whole different area of the state that I li than I lived in. And uh, he played square dances, and this was one of his favorite square dance tunes. And it comes, but it comes from a recording of a famous uh, American fiddler named Tommy Jackson, who recorded a lot of fiddle LPs just for square dancing in the late 50s and early 60s. But it's a great tune for dancing. It's a lovely tune. Yeah. So did you two both uh, grow up playing music, musical families? Uh, Pat more so than me, actually. Yeah, even though for me it skipped a generation. <laughs> my grandparents, my grandfather was a fiddler and my mother on the other side was a church organist for a Swedish commune. Wow. <laughs> in Illinois, yeah. Mm. Yeah, you know those Enlightenment 1840s uh, communal things. I don't know if they had those in Canada, but all of the states in the Midwest, especially there, are commun communes that were started. They were either German, Swedish, and I think Norwegian, even up in the north upper tier of the Midwest. But yeah, so these communal colonies. So. That was Bishop Hill, right? Swedish Bishop Hill, the Swedish commune. And my grandpa was a fiddler and his whole family played. And I have his fiddle that he got 
from his father and grandfather. Wow. Nice. That's very special. It yeah. is. Special. And I just, I got started just because there were fiddlers around where I was and I was bored and wanted something to do. And I heard all this music. I said, oh, I'll go learn from these guys. And so <laughs> Just like that. How, that's how I got started. Yeah. Are, do, are people finding you that way? Like, are they, are, are people saying, hey, you play fiddle? Can I learn? Sure, sure. But, you know, I'm doing most, most everything's online now because, you know, people, it's, it's good and it's bad, you know, like people can be part of the, say, if I just want to do Missouri tunes, someone anywhere in the world can say, I want to do these Missouri style tunes and they can do them. Whereas when I was growing up, of course, it were, everybody lived close together in a few county area where I grew up in central Missouri. So there was tons of fiddlers. I mean, the guys who had been my age, old enough to be my dad or my, mostly my grandfather's age, probably sort of when I started playing. So. Hmm. Do you think this kind of zoom revolution we're having because of the pandemic is going to help save your, preserve your regional music? Either of you. Oh, well, that's a good question. You know, it could, it could. Um, it's, it's hard to tell. Yeah, right. Pat, do you have the sense of a regional background as well? I mean, obviously you lived in the commune or your family was in the commune playing music, but did you have a similar kind of approach to preserving the regional? Because I know that Charlie does. Um, what's your Charlie thoughts on that? Charlie does, but when I was a kid, it had all but died out. Um, and, and my grandfather, you know, he would tell me stories of the dances they played for and that they went to and they were fascinating mm -hmm. but there really wasn't a, a fiddling folk scene when the, i grew up a tradition there's no it there was, was died, no it tradition died out left, yeah. except my school did teach square dancing and it was highly popular in pe in pe <laughs> no my music teacher time okay because a lot yeah. of times people took it in phys ed you know yeah but no dancing. my music well, that makes sense uh, i've i've square danced and usually i'm a sweaty mess after that's right <laughs> yeah <laughs> but pat's really her thing is before she met me was irish music more so than anything else well, because being in chicago you know mm -hmm. and going to the sessions you know you could go to a session and play with Liz Carroll and Martin Hayes once a week. And so why wouldn't you? Sure. <laughs> it was fantastic. <laughs> well, there's some mighty fine Irish tunes too. Oh yeah, sure. There's, there's so many, it's a whole different, you know, it's a whole other world of music to get into. Yeah, I think up here, Irish music had kind of a burst of popularity in the eighties and nineties. Uh-huh. Uh, and and our Cape Breton music became more popular around the same time, sure. which is much more Scottish, I guess. Right, right, more Scottish. Although you know, you know, now I see some of the younger Canadian musicians I know booking them, billing themselves as Canadian Celtic. Have you heard heard this term? I have heard the term. Yeah. yeah. So, and it's like, uh, well, what's the one? There's one young woman who's quite good. Who you know, I can't think of her name now. It escapes me. Yeah. But. No, 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 but, um, but uh, she's one of the contest players, you know, big contest players. Yvonne? No, no. Okay. No, you, you won't guess it. <laughs> but, but, but anyways, she's in a band with a bagpipe, and, but she's playing a lot of Canadian stuff and also playing a lot of Irish and Scottish music too, you know, it's kind of a blend. 
uh, for a stage act, you know. So, so they're calling it Canadian Celtic. And so they, cool. can, they can incorporate all the Irish and Scottish music they want, but still play their Canadian stuff too, mm -hmm. you know. Sure. Which is you know, you, cool. you mentioned contest in there, and maybe I think some of our listeners are not going to know what that is. Can you tell us about the contest culture that you have played in? Oh, well, that was that was one of the main places to play when I was growing up. So fiddle contests are, they're as old as, you know, they're, they're as old as fiddling. Uh, <laughs> you know, you could find references to fiddle contests going back hundreds of years. And uh, in Missouri, they had been fiddle contests since the middle of the 1800s, at least, uh, going back before the Civil War even. And so, but yeah, the fiddler would just... You know, in the early days, the fiddlers fiddlers would get up one at a time and play whatever they wanted, and usually for crowd applause, you know. Mm. And so, and then later on, it actually got more structured. There were fiddlers associations. <laughs> there was score sheets. There were, you know, uh, authorized judges or at least coached judges who would, you know, score according to the score sheet. There was still a lot of shenanigans, you know, but uh, in the always, score and always. always, and that's part of the fun. But yeah, but yeah, so so. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's the whole contest thing. That's a whole scene. That's a whole place to play the fiddle. Uh, Very much still... so here too. I think oh, the fiddlers for sure. growing up, it's it's really really important. I missed all of that. I didn't start playing fiddle till sixty. Okay, I got mired down with button accordion and claw hammer banjo. So it slowed <laughs> me down a little bit before I saw the light. Well, you know what? I tell you what. If, if they if Pembroke happens this year, you know the contest at Pembroke, Ontario. Uh, I'll see you there because there's an age group just for you, the 49 to 64. All right. Fiddlers. Well, you know, my, my plan, because I, I mean, I don't know if visiting America is something that's really in the cards. I mean, who knows what's happening? No, this is in Ontario. No, in well, I know, I, I know, but I'm saying I could go to Pembroke. I don't yes. know if I can go to Clifftop or Rockbridge. Oh, or, oh no, maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, but yeah. I, but so this year I'm planning on going to Pembroke if I possibly can. So, and so I happen we... to know that you hold the distinction of being the only American to win the, the informal Perlane contest they have at Pembroke. That's right. I'm the only American ever to win. In fact, now I've won it twice. He's won it twice. Yeah. Wow. No, it's a wow. really strange contest. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you that know, works? And, and people are cheering for him. I have my own cheering section. I have my che Canadian group. cheering section. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. love that. Yes. Most people, from, mostly people from Quebec, to you. Yes, <laughs> our friends from Quebec. <laughs> but uh, so, so yeah, it's it's a it's actually this is like where the rubber meets the road. Fiddle contests are sort of artificial in terms of playing because you only have to play three or four tunes in the course of the contest, you know. And I know fiddlers who they work up those tunes all year, you know, and and sure. and they they get them letter perfect. And that's what they play in the contest. And they play the same tunes all season long and going from one contest to the next. But, but at the Pure Len, uh, there, there is a, uh, it's a circle. You get in a circle and uh, one person starts a tune and you go around. There might be 40 or 50 fiddlers in this circle seated. And there's a, and there's a referee in the center who will have on a hockey uh, referee's <laughs> jersey. And a whistle. And a whistle. And yes. sometimes he has support. Right. On the sidelines. And aren't we Canadians <laughs> adorable? <laughs> yes. Yes. And there's a there's a house band that plays, and so you the one guy starts a tune, and when he's done, A A B B. That's the sections of the tune. You have to start right without losing the beat. It has to continue. And so as you go around the circle until someone drops 
the beat or can't think of a tune to play. Or plays one that's already been played. Right, you can't play one that's already... can't play a tune that's been played. Right, so they're out, and then and then they make it harder. You play one A part, one B part, and then you play down to one A part. And when, when there's like four or five people left, you're playing one A part of the tune, which is only eight bars of two, four time. So it goes by in about seven seconds. So it go the tunes are coming very fast, and you can't play something that's already been played. And when you're finally knee to knee with you know the last person's two last two people standing, uh, you're you're playing. You have to think of a new tune every seven or eight seconds, and you wow, can't that's drop crazy. the beat. No, you cannot drop the beat. Right, and it can't be a tune that somebody's already played. And by then there may have been 150 tunes played, so all the common tunes are gone. You know, it's wow. You have to dig deep. You know. It's fun. It's it's a it's load of so fun. much fun. It's, a, it's the best. It, people, it's just pure fun. Yeah, people come and that's the only that's the thing they come for every year. You know, is to go to that. It sounds yeah. really good. It's, yeah, they don't even go to the hockey rink to the big contest. They just come for that. <laughs> yeah, all the big contests are in hockey rinks. Of course. Well, yes. That's that's the main meeting and place. And you're on the sure. big screen when you play. Oh, cool. Oh yeah. Yeah, really that's the cool. only time I've been on a jumbotron. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, there's something you said that kind of I saw an interview and it haunted me about the contest that they used to be a way to preserve your favorite music or your regional music. And sure. it made me think about best of lists. You know how a best of books or best of movies, people mm -hmm. get annoyed with that. However, that does get you talking about it. Right. Right. So, yeah. how, how, so I, it sounds like Canada is pretty receptive to your regional music and Sure. You, although when I, I'm in Canada, I mostly play Canadian music. I think oh. I go up there to play Canadian music because I I, I really love Canadian fiddle playing. It's and it's very similar to what the stylistically it's very similar to what's played in the Midwestern United States. Not so, and sure. not so much similar to what's played in the Upland South. You know, in Virginia and West Virginia and North Carolina, mm -hmm. that music doesn't bear much on Canadian music. But the Midwestern oh, music is very similar. Some of the repertoire crosses over perfectly, you know. Why is that? Is it just geography, like travel-wise? Uh, it's, it's, well, I think, you know, it's uh, the Upland South, you know, was very isolated. So mm -hmm. that, that music grew up in isolation. Uh, and the music in the Midwest grew up as a confluence of music from everywhere, you know. So so we could hear, and, and guys I knew growing up, uh, when they were kids, they'd listen to the CBC. If you lived in Iowa, you could hear the CBC on a cold night on AM, you know, because, <laughs> you know, this ionospheric effect where at night this AM, AM signal travels thousands of miles after, when the sun goes down. And so people in Missouri, Iowa, uh, North Dakota, all around were listening. They could listen to Don Messer, you know. That's really fantastic. Oh, yeah. Tell, tell, about tell the them about the jukebox. In Missouri. Yeah, no, that was in Iowa. It was? was Dwight. Yeah, that was Dwight. It was Dwight Land. Dwight, yeah. Iowa. Yeah. So this friend of ours, he they they knew about this Canadian tunes, right? So this guy named Dwight Lamb, he lives in Western Iowa, right on the Missouri River. And they one morning it was raining, and when you're raining, when it's raining, you can't farm. So what do you do? You go to a bar at six a.m. Uh -huh. Right. And so <laughs> they're in this bar, and the jukebox guy comes in, and he's changing out the records. And one of the one of them walks over and says, "Hey, can you get some fiddle music in this?" And sure, I get you anything you want. So the next week he comes back and uh, he's got all these Ned Landry and Don Messer wow. records, you know, 50s era, kind of 50s era New Brunswick maritime stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. 
And that's really and so my favorite all... Canadian fiddle music is that music from that time. I just love it. Oh, I do too. That's that's the I'm yes. I'm frozen in time in the yeah. 50s and 60s when it comes to Canadian fiddle music. And so those guys, there was Woodchopper's Reel and St. Anne's Reel and Little Burnt Potato, and they just feed nickels into that. They'd bring their fiddles into the bar and feed nickels into the jukebox and learn to play those tunes. So that that's really uh, the first stages of the Canadian invasion. Yeah, that's we're, right. We're still that's working right. on that. Yes, that was the Canadian. We got hockey invasion. and fiddle. That's right. <laughs> And, and poutine. <laughs> and there's poutine, yes. <laughs> you know, I, I think another difference between um, the Midwestern music and Canadian music compared to, say, the Appalachian stuff is the Appalachian players, they don't play any jigs. No, there's none. Yeah. None. They don't, play, they don't play jigs. They play very few waltzes, too. It's mostly what we'd call reels or hoedowns. You know, and, and sometimes they play things which might be approaching airs, you know, sort of plaintive, you know, things with a lot of droning. Mm -hmm. But yeah, then that music, that's, no one plays that way in the Midwest at all. You know, they don't play. And, but when I was growing up, they played lots of waltzes, lots of hoedowns or reels. And, but there was always a handful of guys who knew these, they called them quadrilles, but they were six, eight time mm -hmm. tunes. And uh, yeah, they loved that stuff. So it's it, it, that right you're right it's not existent in the eastern repertoire and all through the south there's nobody playing jigs at all six eight time is not played so right. here yeah, that's one of the things if, we love if, if you're going to be a canadian fiddler you better learn your jigs because that's right because we've got loads of them and oh, loads yeah. and loads of truck loads of waltzes right and yeah. and lots of great waltzes yeah. and, well you know in the first few years i went up to pembroke that was always the thing that I would get dinged for in the contest is even though I could play a jig respectively, I couldn't play it the way those guys were. It's real ah. slow. It's real even. It's real, cl real clear. You know, it's a whole different style of playing jigs than I was used to. I was trying to play them a little more Irishy, Scottishy. You know, and so. Well, and we didn't know in the waltzes he couldn't play double stops. Right, right. That's that's in gotten Canada, a little. In Canada, you cannot play double stops right, that's in right. the contest. That's gotten a little looser, really? but not much. <laughs> no. I did not know that. Yeah, if you were playing in if you were playing in Shelburne in the seventies or something, and you played a double stop or a, even a drone, forget it. It's like <laughs> it would just like I don't know if they'd actually disqualify you, but you'd know there's no way you'd you'd place because you go back and listen to those old recordings those guys are playing clean pure notes with not much vibrato either just like real clean mm -hmm. and real even you know and just i'm okay tune. with that i'm not big on on a lot of bravado personally yeah no right right now now you're i'm hearing more vibrato now actually than i than i used to but <laughs> <laughs> so charlie who were your fiddle heroes growing up Oh, well, so all the local guys first. There was like, there was a guy named Taylor McBain who I learned from first and Pete McMahon. And there was a great fiddler named Cyril Stinnett who won the big contest at Weezer, Idaho in the 60s. And supposedly yep. went to Canada too. No, he went to the Expo 67. I think he went to Shelburne. I don't think so. I think he went, I think he played at, uh, I think he played at the World's Fair. Uh, and it was in Montreal in, in 1970 or something like that. Right, he played at the U.S. Pavilion. Yeah, there was a lot of... There, I, I finally sorted that out when we went up to Shelburne because I was able to find somebody who had a list of the winners. Because okay. yeah. everyone had always said, oh, he won, he Shelburne, won Shelburne. Because there was a photograph of him in a newspaper in Kansas City. This guy was from a dinky town in northwest He took Missouri. a bus wherever he went right. <laughs> and borrowed a fiddle. 
<laughs> oh. Well, but yeah, everyone thought he'd won Shelburne, but I was able to debunk that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Expo 67, that's not shabby. Right. Yeah. No. no, that's big time. It was a, that was a big deal for us. It was back at a time when world yes. fairs were still a big thing. You know, we didn't that, have that the was, internet. That so. was in Montreal, right? It was, yes, it was. Well, I was there. I was there in cool. Montreal in 67. With my Girl Scout troop. Wow. My parents dragged me there. It was wonderful. Every day. (laughs) It was fabulous. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, I have a pressing question. Why are you called Possum? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, uh, it's just a nickname I've had since I was a kid. And I've kind of just kept it, you know, kind of of just stuck. I don't know. His mother knew, but she took her secret to the grave. Wow. I love possums. My husband is terrified of them, but I actually love them. They're not scary at all no, if you get used good. to being around them. They're you know? good. They're, they won't even really bite you unless you like no. really were super they mean won't. to them, you know. We get a few around here. We're kind of at the northern end of their range. Yes. Here, right. but we do get a few. And, you know, we don't have so many um, uh, hound dogs around. So, that, I mean, possums really, they get chased by hound dogs up trees. Right. Isn't that what right. they do for a living? Yeah, well, more, yeah. yeah, that's right. But they now, have to be really scared but, to get up a tree. But you've got porcupines, so we don't have. Oh porcup- yes, we do. And aren't they the strangest creatures? <laughs> they are. That's like a to me. That's like an armored. And that's like an armored possum. You know, it is. You, you, you know, I read a book about survival in the bush once, and and this guy had a trap for catching porcupines, oh. and and his trap was um, find a stick about three feet long and wait for the porcupine to come by. Because <laughs> they're not very fast. No, they? they're very, very slow. So he was advocating waiting at night for the porcupine to come by and then walloping this poor creature. Poor I think thing. that'd make for slim pickings on the how many porcupines you'd bag though, you know? <laughs> yeah. Tell me about when you moved to a, um, I like the fact when you were talking about a bow, you almost did a reverse. You know how people are talking about being privileged and elite and that that's not listening to people. You have a little anecdote about the reverse of being um, ignorant and not having a nice bow. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's see. I'm not sure where that came from. That uh, was from an interview in Fiddler magazine. Oh, well, that was a oh, research well, here, you know. I know. I know you guys are. Yeah, you did your we're research. We're on it. I, I, the, I have to remember which, ago. which that was in 1996, I think. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, yeah. I think uh, I have to remember what lies I told then. You know? oh, so you've yeah. recovered from staying in, like, I just thought it was really funny that you wouldn't have a more expensive bow. I think you said something like whatever the cost of the hair is replacing versus the cost of the oh, bow. Right. You had a you had a ratio there, and then you said, "Forget it. Once you tried a good bow, you were never going to go back." That's that's okay. right. Well, you know, I always yeah. I always thought, uh, uh, you know, you never. I thought we'd never see what we're seeing now. That's when you had a Sears fiddle. I had a Sears he fiddle. Had a Sears fiddle. Sears, Sears oh, and Roebuck yeah. fiddle. Wow. But, but was that you, you like know, a statement? Thought, what's yeah? What's that? Was that a statement? No, it's just no. that they were everywhere because no. you know. If, have you ever seen one of these 1900 Sears catalogs, the old ones? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They, yes. They've got all the agricultural implements in them and all that. Well, there's a whole pages of musical instruments. That's where our piano and our piccolo came from, Sears. Yeah, and our cool. and our pump organ. We have a pump organ. Yeah. If I turn the camera around, that's made in Chicago. Yeah. It's sold by wow. Sears. Cool. Here in our living room, but so everybody in the Midwest had violins that they'd ordered from Sears. 
because you can order a whole violin outfit for two dollars with the case, mm. bow, fiddle, and they were all made in, in Germany and imported. Mm. But they were they were some of them were okay and some of them were horrible. <laughs> and uh, so I yeah I had all the guys I knew had old German violins. That was but now I've got a very nice violin made by Christopher Germain from Philadelphia. And and I have a very he's nice. He's a Missouri guy. He's a guy I grew up with, actually. Yeah. But, uh, but, he's a good player a too. Nice I've phone. seen him on your program. Oh yeah, right. That's right. He's been on my program. Yeah. So, but you know, this whole thing with the bows and the hair, I never thought I'd see now. But with these imported bows, if you buy one of these uh, fiberglass ch uh, bows, or most are imported from China or Indonesia, I think, mm -hmm. and the bow price is down almost to where it's intersecting with the cost of rehairing the bow. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so, now you have a choice when the bow needs rehairing. Do I just toss it <laughs> and order a new one? And sure. I think if, my, if it was up to me, I probably would. That's what I'd do. I'd just <laughs> throw the bow away and order a new bow with new hair in it. But Wow, interesting. You have a good bow. No, I have a good bow, yeah. You have a good bow now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to, uh, to mention for our listeners that um, you have available on your YouTube channel the most amazing set of programs and resources for the aspiring fiddler that a guy could ask for um, <laughs> between the big fiddle show and sessions Wednesdays and, and camp possum and twin fiddle time, um, marvelous live music. And, and if you sign up for, for Patreon, uh, Charlie has got so many resources between Dots and tabs and videos. It's really, uh, it's a fantastic bit of work and you ought to be real proud of it. Well, thanks. Thanks. And you know, I never would have done that had the pandemic not hit. I don't think. Oh. I, I really, I mean, I had my YouTube channel before then, but we certainly didn't have this kind of variety show thing we do. <laughs> and I wouldn't have never started a Patreon. I would have thought, oh, why, who, who wants to, why would you want to do that? But now I realize it's a place where I could kind of clearinghouse all my stuff, you know? And, and people can access it. It's, so, so it's worked out really well. But well, and we're not as, right. as someone who's trying to learn fiddle, having all of those resources available at my fingertips is really, it's just an incredible resource and I just love it. Oh, well, thanks, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> so we're, we're uh, running low on time because we don't have the pro Zoom account. Okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> so we have just a, a few minutes left. So. Um, we'd like to first thank you for joining us. We really, we really sure, appreciate yeah. it, and let you know that we we love what you're doing. Um, you know, with your with your uh, quest for internet world domination, I think it's really, <laughs> really great. And if we could ask you to play one more tune, sure, that would be fantastic. That's great, thank and you. it's really nice to see you, Eugene, Very and nice. and meet you, Candy. It's really yes. great. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Awesome. Okay, Thanks so, so one much. more tune. So we'll play a Canadian tune then. How about yay, that? Yay. We played an American tune, so we'll play. Let's just play Woodchopper's Reel. I, I never have okay. tired of I've known that tune for hey. years. This tune was on uh, uh, it's recording. On it's, yeah, it was on the jukebox in <laughs> Iowa. And that's how I learned it, actually, from those guys in Iowa who learned it off the Ned Landry playing it from mm -hmm. this what, jukebox. So. What town was that? Are you allowed to tell uh, us? He, they, were, they were near Onawa, Iowa, which is Thank it's you. right central. It's, it's right in the middle of Iowa. You know, the western border of Iowa is the Missouri River. So they lived right near the river. 
And they were Danish. He was Danish. Played, his father played button accordion. His grandfather, rather, played button accordion. So lovely tradition, lovely folks up there in western Iowa. So. Yeah. So, okay, let's play the Woodchopper's Reel here. Okay. So much. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it was really fun. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks so much. Hi. Hi. Well, that was amazing. Yes, that was a lot of fun. And I'm I'm really happy that Pat and Possum joined us. I think they're doing a fantastic thing for the fiddle community, the, the mm. traditional music community. Uh, and there's so much fun to talk to and there are a lot of fun. Play. They were a lot of fun to talk to, and they're also just, like I said, I got revved up. That music just woke me up. Um, that was pretty exciting. I was really tired, and it just gave me a whole adrenaline feed. So how have you been, going. Candy, this week? Uh, I'm okay. I've been watching a lot and writing a lot. I'm struggling with my paper, but not in all ways, just in some ways. Just trimming up so much mess and trimming up the things I thought I fixed and I didn't fix. So I have to I keep printing it out. Mm -hmm. And then I go, oh my God. Do you <laughs> I find made something? And I, you know, the first time I printed it out, I was like so proud. I was so excited. And I read it the next morning. It was like, oh my God, I was on acid last night or something. It didn't <laughs> make any sense. Do you find that it's a lot easier for you to see what you've written when you look at a hard copy paper as opposed to on a computer screen? No, I feel I both. I'm, I'm, I, I, maybe I did. I've been online so much writing on my computer so much that I, I guess I'm okay. What I like about it though, is that I think I told you I was, I printed it all out because I wrote it very strangely. I just went each section I wrote and I had no idea how I was going to blend it into each other. And in fact, I have not blended it in very well at all in terms of academic format, but. Um, but it has a different kind of character. It does have a different kind of character. And um, I then I cut it up to see if I could help. I wasn't really sure what order should I put it in. Plus, I was hoping to put a part about No Country for Old Men in the exact middle of my paper. But I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. So I was trying to paginate it, if you will. Okay. Well, you Since can't I was have everything. No, but in, I'm in talking about pagination. So I thought, oh, why don't I try and do that in my paper as well, right? So ah. we'll see. We'll see. I don't have, I, I, I didn't think I had my opening line, but maybe now I do. I always like to have a little opening thing that sets my energy going. 
Uh-huh. And um, I don't know. So when, then, when, when is the conference? Oh, it's not for a couple of weeks yet. Not until the, the actual conference isn't until February 23rd. Okay. We so you have, you are, have a little time to, to mess with to, it and to live with it for a while. Yeah. I got to do some other things though. In that time period, I, I, my goal was to be finished by now. Today, when I read it out to Stag, I was like, oh, for fuck's sakes, I have to correct a couple more things. And it's so much better than I, the version I sent to my sister. I hope she was too busy to read it because I'm sure she was like, this poor woman is just mental or something. Anyway, I've, I've tidied it up a lot since I even a couple of days ago. And then um, I'm watching a lot, too. So that's good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm watching two sports things. I'm no finishing way. up. Yeah, it's so weird. I, I did like Friday Night Lights, so I'll be honest with you. That was a great show. Um, but I'm watching, I think I told you, um, Bear Town. Did I mention that last week? I don't think maybe sure I did. It's a really it. good show. It's a Swedish show, and it's in Swedish with subtitles. And it's about a hockey town where a guy from played, he was from Sweden, but he got picked up in Canada for hockey. And his career was not that well. They had a terrible loss in their family. So they go back home and he's coaching the team there. And it's a very good movie. It does have a, a series, a mini series. It's only five, five or six episodes. It's a bit like Mayor of Easttown in a way of the, the mood, but not as happy. There's not as many whimsical characters, unfortunately. It's interesting. I have the uh, the book, the Kindle version of the book. Bear Town, the novel. It's based Stop on it. Yes, I have it sitting on my what on the my, hell on my phone, and it's been there for about two years. And I keep meaning to read it mm. because I I bought it because something about the story or something it just caught my imagination. I thought this will be a mm. fun read, and I I put it on my phone on Kindle, and I meant to just start reading it, and it's just been sitting there. I haven't got to it. I can't believe it. Um, well, you know what? It start, I'm going to tell you how the, the, the series starts out. Okay. It starts out in the snow and a person running. Then you realize there's another person running behind them with a gun. And then it goes right to them running onto frozen ice and the gun being put at someone's head. You cannot see who they are, though, because of the winter gear. They're just dressed up warm and the camera's just far enough away that you have no idea who this is. Then it goes into the rest of the story. So right away, you're like, wow, what's going to happen? It's um, it's not easy to watch. It's difficult, but it's a really okay. good, really good drama. And um, I do love it. I love the hockey sequences are incredible. It's really um, filmed beautifully, and it's very good. And then I think of my Swedish friends or our Swedish friends, Willie and Eva. I wonder if they've watched it or if they've read the book. And I'm sure, I bet they have. I don't the funny thing about it is even though I have the book sitting on my phone, I know nothing about it. <laughs> Yeah, that um, is really funny. I, I think at one time I bought a few books on Kindle that mm-hmm. I just kind of, I was perusing lists. Mm-hmm. What are the best novels out there this year? What are the right. best different category? I, I just right. was looking at lists, which isn't something I do a lot, but I, oh, I was right. on this little list jag and this that book, uh, Beartown, made a lot of lists. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Well, I can see why. And no wonder it's made into an HBO. So it's Europe HBO. Okay. So it's oh, very, very good. And um, I'm sure it'll come to your service at one point on Crave or something. Yeah, if, really we, if we don't already have it, we if, might. If you don't already have it. And then the other one I think I mentioned is I'm just finishing up uh, Ted Lasso. From um, It's Great. so you good. That one. 
and a completely different vibe. I mean, it's a, a, a soccer team in England and it's comedy. So just a very different, the last episode we watched, I had to say to stay, oh my God, I couldn't tell how the timer worked in it, whether it was a flashback or whether it was not a flashback. It was so crazy. It was so cool and very experimental for a comedy. I think that I've seen a trailer or something for it. It's really the greatest show. The greatest, greatest, greatest show. Okay. If anybody doesn't watch it, you need to watch it. I also forgot to finish my counselor story last time. I was talking to you about the counselor, the movie, the counselor. And I was saying hard how... to believe that we would digress. <laughs> well, it's not that I don't, I love digressing, but I hate it when I forget to get to the, the point of the story. And um, I was trying to tell you that the, the script had leaked and the script shows up and let's say there's 20 people on the web board arguing about maybe 18, 17 of them thought it wasn't McCarthy and they thought it was bullshit and crap. And Great. there was about two or yeah, three you, of us that you thought mentioned it was that good. I think last yeah, time. I'm, well, yeah. I'm going to build up through my story. Okay. I'm just recapping because what if someone didn't listen to last week? Hard to believe. So I thought I would recap. So um, we argued about this and one of the things... There, there, there was just a feeling that it couldn't possibly, and there's no way we could know if it was his or not until it was made, right? We're not going to know that. We're just fans. So we had to wait until the movie was created. Um, it was exactly the same. When the movie came out, though, the script was so tight. The movie was so tight to the script, it was almost stunning. There was one thing that I noticed was taken out, and it was the, the words finger fuck. They were in the script, but they did not make it into the movie. Perhaps the actors didn't want to say it or didn't want to deal with it. I don't know. Um, but my point was that everyone loved McCarthy so much that they had glass boxed him or glass cased him. It's not the phrase when you put something, you elevate art way too much and you don't let it come out of the glass case. It stays in a museum. Mm. And I think with the people that were older generations on the forum, they weren't prepared for McCarthy to change. And one thing that was really cool is- Well, you're not allowed store, to change. Come on. Creative right, people aren't allowed or, to change. That's it. Or they felt that he was too um, elevated to say something like finger fuck. Or and this is a man who had so much sexual violence in Blood Meridian and and Harrogate and Sir in Sutri has sex with a watermelon. So I don't know why that what they thought wasn't suitable about <laughs> they this. They forgot script. about that. Yeah. <laughs> Funny <laughs> the things you forget about. <laughs> well, yeah, he gets put in jail. That's how Sutri meets him, right? So, but curiously enough, there there was a bookstore down the street from where I was working at Old Town and a great um, in Lincoln Square called Bookseller. I just love going there. I got the books I sent you from there. Aren't, and, um, aren't book bookstores great, really? Yes, yes. I mean, I really miss the great bookstores. We used to have great mm -hmm. bookstores in this city, and I, I don't think we really have the great ones anymore. I know. I love bookstores or I love them. And bookseller is still there. It has a little cafe and tables. They have events there. And I love coffee shops. I spent about an hour looking for a coffee shop today. Finally found out that the one down my street is open, but you can't sit there. They haven't had anybody table sitting since COVID. So that, that was depressing. Uh, I well, just you want know, to sit in a coffee shop. Here in Ontario, uh, today or this week, I guess, was the, was the yesterday would have been the first day for restaurants to have in-house dining for a few weeks since mm. um since they um outlawed that because of uh uh covid 
So I went out today and I had lunch with an old friend of mine uh, who I worked with for several years, who I haven't seen since before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And we had a a delightful two and a half hour lunch in (laughs) almost empty milestones. (laughs) Very good. Now, I don't want to get hijacked here. I'm still going to finish. My point was. I would never hijack your point. (laughs) (laughs) Now, of course, I'm thinking, how can I hijack her point even more? Don't worry, you do it very naturally. Um, was that there was a guy that was working there and he was reading Cormac McCarthy. And I guess we started talking about this script and he freaking loved it and couldn't wait to see the movie. And he was like 24 years old. So there's a lot to be said about he didn't have him in a glass case, maybe like uh, the old Formites that did. You know where else was a problem was Macbeth. I think that's what happened with Macbeth for me was that they kept the script in, they kept Macbeth and Shakespeare in a glass cage. The Cohen, um, Francis McDormand, Denzel Washington, and uh, Joel Cohen. I think that was the part that I'm going to say, I'm going to change my rating from 10 out of 10 to about 8 out of 10. Explain why. Well, I'm not sure I quite get it. I, I think that it was way too, it was really was the tragedy of Macbeth. And Shakespeare has so much comedy, so much uh, comedy relief, even in the tragedies, he has opportunities for characters to step outside of the tragic thing and that you can have levity. And I also think one of the biggest things when I started thinking about this um, was that they should have had some sexual chemistry between Macbeth the, the married couple. I think they should have been really intimate at the beginning. And that part of the loss was that this murder had broken up their marriage as well. I mean, it breaks it up because she dies or they both die or whatever, but I think they could have had them losing that. Hmm, and I think it would yeah. have been very stronger to have them as a very passionate couple who didn't know a children. heck of a movie. Oh, I'm, Hey, for me, nine out of 10 is an amazing movie. I mean, I gave it 10 out of 10, but when I thought about it with my book club, um, I really realized I had to change it because there was some problems. Also, when when Macbeth, Denzel Washington, whenever he would think about the witches, there was always somebody who came and fixed his opinion from it in the in the script in the movie. And really, we shouldn't have to worry about whether it was true or not that if they were supernatural. So um, you know, there was just a couple of things in there that really haunted me later on, and I just want to say that. The only Uh, thing for me, I think, that bothered me in Macbeth was every now and then the way Denzel would say a word or a phrase Mm. took me back to, like, the taking of Pelham 123. Or training day or something. Or something like that. So he, he had a little bit of his kind of trademark... Mm. Denzel thing, uh, in, inflection in in mm-hmm. in the way he spoke. He didn't let it loose very much in the movie, but every mm. now and then it came out, and it's like, ooh, that just didn't yeah. quite fit there. The way yeah, he said yeah. that, yeah, yeah. And and you know, I think some of that would that would be relieved too if there had been a bit more, uh, if they'd had a, a cuddling scene, maybe you know, just just a bit of kissing and passion, and then if they'd had some of that. Um, there's a couple of characters there that could have been a comic relief. Um, I just want to mention that. Okay. That's up. And now I finally finished my story that we shouldn't be set in our ways and assume something about a, an artist because we should be open to seeing them do something different. We should. Yeah. Like hey, a what, young person would. One thing both of us watched this week after recently talking about um, Hitchcock 
and Strangers on a, on a Train, we both watched another Hitchcock film. Yeah, we did. And maybe we ought to, as the we go through the podcast in the coming months, maybe we ought to watch more Hitchcock and keep going back to them. I think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, there's one I really want to tackle. I don't know if I can find it or not. It's called Under Capricorn. And it's with Ingrid Bergman. And I'm very, very curious to watch it. I've never even I, heard I of it. I saw something about it and it, it, it intrigued me. So tell us a little bit about the beginning of, uh, or get us set up for the plot of, of Notorious. Oh, Notorious is the one that we yeah. watched. Well, it's, yeah. a, it's a 1946 film. Mm-hmm. Um, is it a propaganda film? I bordering on it. Yeah, for sure. It's, I was, I, I have I think, some notes. I have some notes about that too. Funny enough. Okay. Cause I, cause I think it kind of was, it kind of yeah. was that they kind of dressed up with the spy thriller. Um, sure. Uh, sure. Cloak, but it, the timing of it, 1946. Um, and, you know, a film about infiltrating a Nazi organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it's at least opportune. For sure. So, so, yeah. So basically, how does that happen? We see a court case. We see a court. We see a man being sent to prison. We're aware that he's a Nazi for some reason as a war criminal. At the beginning of the movie, I wanted to ask you, why the hell do they put, um, and I took pictures of it. I'll put it on Facebook and social media. But why do they say um, Miami, February 24th or April 24th, 1946? Why do they do that? They print it across the whole screen. Is that to give it historical correctness? Is it to make us feel like it's a true story? Maybe to make it seem newsy. Newsy. And um, like you said, this is very important politics. Maybe to, to kind of grapple with the other side of Casablanca. You so know, the only reason, the only reason why we get the trial is mm-hmm. to be introduced to the daughter of the person on trial. Person on trial is a war criminal, a Nazi, and uh, his daughter is played, uh, Alicia is played by Ingrid Bergman, and she is portrayed, I don't like, I don't like to use this expression, but I Want think it's the expression <laughs> they would, they would have used, they would call her a loose woman. Yes. Right. Yes. This has got a lot of slut shaming in it. Yeah. This movie has a lot of slut shaming. It's part of the plot. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so she is, uh, she's a hard drinking gal. Uh, mm-hmm. and, um, <laughs> Cary Grant shows up. He plays a government agent, Devlin, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he wants to recruit her, uh, to infiltrate a Nazi organization. And he kind of, he kind of morally blackmails her in a way, uh, in convincing her to, to do this to marry this Nazi in order to expose the organization. And he doesn't actually say, I want you to do this, but it's very clear. And she understands Mm -hmm. and says, well, you obviously you want me to do this. Yeah. It's a very difficult, I, I find it painful. I will say that I think that the strong part of the movie is this relationship and this power struggle between Grant and um, and Hepburn. Uh, Ingrid Bergman, not Hepburn. Bergman. Ingrid Bergman, yeah, <laughs> between those two. Sorry about that. And, um, you know, it's funny because, first of all, they have a lot of um, banter. Did you notice that the camera comes up behind his head? 
when we see him in the party, the camera comes behind his head. And you know what it reminded me of? Don Draper. Because in Mad Men, the camera was often behind Don Draper's head, oh. but it was always his point of view. And we couldn't see. Yes. We didn't we know. We see that throughout was... Notorious. We, we see Carrie Grant from behind. Right. And we don't know what is in his mind. And, and sometimes he's turning and he well, comes back to gather his thoughts. You don't know because the, we're told that that the character, the Ingrid Bergman character, Alicia and Devlin fall in love and they have this love affair. But he seems to be a pretty cold fish. Well, he you know, is when, a cold fish. When, he's, he's when horrible. he kisses her, his his mouth is very closed. Um, yeah. There's no there's no passion at all but between them. And yet they're trying to sell us on this love affair. Well, but really, it's believe- all about power, isn't it? Well, I don't know, because I believe the love affair. I think what happened is that because he's, um, he's, you know, this isn't a class, you know, how sometimes there could be a class division. This is really about a morality thing. She is free. At one point, she's in a beautiful harem dress, harem pants and a beautiful uh, sequin striped zebra top. And it's funny because it's almost like the cliche of exotic. And then you can hear Arabic music in the background. And, you know, it's inappropriate they did it, but I see why at the time, I guess Hitchcock was trying to say, well, you know, Arabia and Iran and Persia are very exotic. And he was associating her with that, which is also very funny because we're thinking of her as Casablanca too. So he well, and there's her- definitely, you, you can definitely think of this film as almost a, a, a pair with Casablanca in Absolutely. a way. Absolutely. Yes. Um, treated treated differently yes so you have this um she is definitely a party babe she's very free she's cynical and she's seen through all the games of of the world and she's not really interested in love she says she's not but Cary Grant is pretty charming and the thing with Cary Grant is he's highly attracted to her and he resents the fact at one point he takes his scarf and he ties it around her little tiny waist. It's barely showing like he's a prude that he has to cover up her stomach so that she's presentable to go outside and doesn't get cold. And that scarf also symbolizes him owning her. He's already buying into owning her. Mm-hmm. They go for a drive. And, and, and it's weird how the film noir. Um, Hitchcock device, loves the cars. He does. But this is a weird um, device of fi- femme fatale in in a lot of a film noir the woman has something drawn to attention to her about her eyes in chinatown she has a flawed pupil in here her hair goes in her eyes and i just thought wow that was a really subtle way that they've shown she knows what's going on the woman always knows what's going on in these films in film noir and so yeah they go for this wacky drive and um they do start to get very hanging out so she says he blackmails her into going to rio de janeiro and they make sure we see the whole city, the whole oh, yeah. countryside, the aircraft. It's really beautifully done. Again, historically correct. A lot of money must have been spent on it. And um, she, they don't know what the mission is yet, actually. He's got her into it. He's pushed her into it. Now they have like days together where they're just hanging out in this beautiful tropical um, city cosmopolitan, um, elegant art and culture, and they're definitely falling in love. And when she says, why don't you love me? You know, can't you forgive me? Can't you accept that maybe for a few seconds, I might not be this um, tarnished woman because he sees her as dirty because she had slept with other men. And um, this slut shaming is really incredible to see in 1946. And um, so she's pushing him. And at one point, I guess they finally kiss and they start hanging out and they start to fall in love and hang out and live in her. They're living together, basically. 
And um, at one point she's again asking him, can't you say that you love me? And he says something really classic. He says, when I don't love you, I'll let you know. <laughs> I have to write it down because I remember it from when I saw it from years ago. And it was such a good point of a man who feels like the woman's not good enough for him. Mm-hmm. And what the problem is, he doesn't think she's good enough for him. And that is like the worst crime. And then now they're going to go meet this, um, the, his CIA operatives or whatever they are, tell him that you have to get her to start dating this guy because she knows this older man in Rio de Janeiro who's a Nazi. And, the, the, you know, these bastards are all hanging out. Claude Rains. Claude Rains, who also was in a famous movie. Oh, he was in Maltese Falcon. Yes, yes. And wasn't he in uh, Casablanca? Oh, maybe it wasn't him. Sorry. Anyways, so you've got him, uh, you've got him that there's this premise that there's a father's friend. Her father's friend wants to date him and he already tried to date her. So Cary Grant gets pushed back into doing this. Yes, they knew each other. They have a fight. They had a fight. Because she's like, why will, Why didn't you stand up for me and say I wouldn't do this? He tried to, but then he would look weak in front of his bosses that he was falling in love with her. So they go back to this sacrifice. It's a reverse sacrifice of Casablanca. In Casablanca, her sacrifice is to not be with the man that she really loves, but to go with the hero who's going to fight the Nazis. This one is she has to go with the Nazis yes. and not be the, with the one that she and loves. If I can interrupt for just yeah, a second please, for a quick fix it. Uh, yeah. Claude Rains movies, The Invisible Man, Class of, which was 1933, Casablanca, 1942, Notorious, 1946. So it was, yeah. I think it's maybe his next film after Casablanca. Right. Isn't that interesting, though, that they really yes. push that, that theme that this is like the bookend. Yeah, okay. No, right. sorry, these aren't in order. A uh, Phantom oh. of the Opera, 1943, <laughs> The Unsuspected, 1947, Now Voyager, 1942. Oh, that's Mr. A great Smith movie. Goes to Washington, 1939, mm. The Adventures of Robin Hood, 1938, mm. The Wolfman, 41, Mr. Skeffington, 1944. He was in a lot of movies. He, the Lost yes, World, I'm... 1960, Deception, 1946, mm. uh, Passage to uh, Marseille, 1944. The Seahawk, 1940. My goodness, nice. I've seen some of these. I didn't even yeah, know. Yeah, me too. Uh, know. Here comes amazing. Mr. Jordan, Caesar and Cleopatra, Angel on My mm-hmm. Shoulder, Four Daughters, The Greatest Story Ever Told, The Passionate Friends, Rope of Sand, Where Danger Lives. It goes on. He, he was even in Lawrence of Arabia. He was in everything. He's, he was in more movies than, than, than Morgan Freeman. Yeah, he's amazing. So, yeah, so that is pretty cool that he put not only Bergman, but also Claude Rains in this. Well, also, in a really perverse way, they made him a victim. Well, yeah, they kind of, yes, they do. I find it fascinating. It really like pulls he, They at just us hung because... him out to dry at the end where he's going to get killed by his Nazi friends. Right. Right. And right. he was just doing his like Nazi thing. He was very consistent, but he got burned by, by the, the forces of good. Right. Well, also, you're, you're, you got something here because one, he shouldn't be with her. It's, it's wrong that he's with her because it's, he's friends with her father. So it's, it's not a good thing. You, nobody wants somebody to be friends with you and then they go with your child. Um, and second of all, Cary Grant is cold and unloving and, and judges her for being a tramp, yet this well, He's obsessed just, with her at the same sure, time. Yeah. Sure, but 
but she's not good enough for him. Meanwhile, Claude Rains's character absolutely accepts her past. So he's almost sympathetic because he's nice to yes. her. And everyone loves Ingrid Bergman so much at this point before her fall. Everyone loves her that it would be outrageous that Cary Grant wouldn't accept her no matter what her party lifestyle was. So her this fall. guy- me, Whoa, 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 back up. What, tell me about Ingrid Bergman's fall. Well, because she did have an affair um, in, in, in this kind of McCarthy-like era um, after being a, an, a heroine, you know, one of the worst things you can do is be a woman with a past or be perceived as um, sexually active and happy about it. And she had, um, she ended up marrying the director, but they had an affair that was in the tabloids and they actually had to move to Europe. They couldn't stay in the States. Her big comeback was for playing um, Nicholas and the Czar's daughter, missing daughter. I forgot her name, Anastasia or something in the 60s. Um, she had to come back into the States, but she could only work in Europe with her husband. Well, she could work with anybody in Europe, but they had to leave the country because of the scandal that she had this, uh, you know, affair. I had no idea. I don't, I don't know anything about that kind of thing, really. Well, yeah, I mean, she's just one of those people like Robin Wood said that she's part of that, that new type of critique that came out in the 60s and 70s, where you could you could look at the um, arc of a of a. Um, an actor or a star, and it can be used used with them, just like Hitchcock has mm. done. He's used Claude Rains and her in this film to make it historically correct or or whatever. But the movie for me is way way more about this weird, um, you know, kind of uh, judgment against her character. But mm -hmm. it's also a great spy film. But you're right. Here is the guy who she has to go against. Uh, Alexander Sebastian, the Nazi. And isn't that the creepiest Nazi house? Mm, yes. Oh, God, it's so creepy. And well, in fact, it, oh, go ahead. Uh, plus, they had that amazing um, wine cellar area where they mm. had that, that wonderful scene where they have to sneak in and find the sand in the bottles of champagne. Right, right. Uh, which is very much a Hitchcock kind of trope, isn't it? Yes. Like they have to be doing this knowing that they could be caught any second. Yes, it's pretty cool that she's there. And not only is she there just hanging out, she's and she's recording their names, she's hearing what they say, but she notices behavior like a forensic um, detective would on one of the party guests looking upset about a bottle of wine. And she decides to say, I think this is a problem. I thought that was incredible, mm -hmm. you know, because who would do that? I just thought it was really cool. She's very much like um, Grace Kelly in Rear Window. Here's another sacrificial woman sent out to um, solve the mystery while the men are impotent and, and not actually hands-on. And they say, remember Cary Grant's bosses are talking about um, her and slashing her. And then at one point, one of the guys says, excuse me, would one of your wives do this? You're, she may be a single woman and dating and on, on you know, available. Would, would any of your wives make this sacrifice to go and fight Nazis, you know? <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. There's a lot of little weird things in it. When uh, when Ke the Cary Grant character, Devlin, goes back to the house to rescue Alicia, mm -hmm. it reminded me very much of North by Northwest when he climbs up, climbs up to that incredible house uh, overlooking mm -hmm. Mount Rushmore yeah. to, uh, to rescue Eva Marie Saint. Yeah. Um, very, very similar kind of... Um, kind of thing where he has to there's stairs involved the big staircase and a very similar kind of scene mm -hmm. and it was mm -hmm. the kind of scene that's up Hitchcock's alley and he liked to yeah. use those sorts of um 
familiar scenes in different movies and in, in different sorts of ways as part of his film language. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder what it does to us. I think it's like, it, it's kind of exhilarating. It's something we're familiar with and all of a sudden something scary is happening at it. You know, it's something suspenseful. Again, that's that, um, they're not a damsel in distress. Eva Marie Saint is not a damsel in distress. They become one because of these machinations of men. They're yeah, very that's, that's strong. Very true. Yeah. yeah, they're very strong. Um, you know, it's funny because, like, uh, you know, there's so little, there's barely, I always think of Hitchcock as having this love redemption, but this is a difficult movie to see that in. It uh, yeah, it's also a difficult movie to, to watch. The, there's something about the pacing in Notorious that it doesn't propel you, particularly first in the first third of the film, it doesn't propel you through the movie at quite the right pace. Mm. Um, and I found it a little bit difficult to hold my interest in the first um, mm. chunk of, of the movie. And I thought it might be, it might have more to do with the time. Um, Doing, doing a film at that time and the way the tolerance audience have for different kinds of storytelling might have been different at that time than ours is today. We, Absolutely. We, we tend to like faster edits and faster pace. Absolutely. That, it's definitely true. Um, you know, I became, I kind of got into it because I really liked this whole sexual uh, battle of the sexes. That really was very suspenseful for me. And then you notice that Claude Rains, he gives her, so Cary Grant has tied that scarf around her as a possession. And then Claude Rains is putting the necklaces on her. Like one of them's even like a choker collar um, that they own, they, they, they've owned this woman, you know? And uh, there was something else really, I thought cool stylistically. On the door, there was these quatrefoils and that's like a four leaf clover. And they go back very, very far. In fact, South America even has um, that pattern and it's like a crucifix, but it's also good luck and symbolic. I thought that was funny that that was on the, the Nazi's house. Um, yeah, it's a cosmic central axis in Central America and Mesoamerica. And so it's not just a Christian pattern or Irish okay. pattern, that four leaf clover. Oh, that was pretty cool. And um, what about that mother? Uh, the bad guy's mother. What about her? She was creepy too. Well, very creepy. Very creepy. And when, you know, there's three people, Cary Grant and him and the mother all come into her sleeping or in a bed and the shadow is all blacked out and then they come out of it. Mm. It's very strange. And at one point that shadow, um, when they decide to poison her, because now they realize the, the Nazis have realized that his life is in danger because the other Nazis will see him as being trapped by this woman. If she gets out, that's right. She's going to bring them to um, and, justice. And so he needs, he wants, he feels he needs to kill her, but he needs to do it slowly and make it look like uh, it's not a poison, but she knows perfectly well. She's being poisoned. Right. Right. And she he tells Terry Grant, he's poisoning me. Yeah. Yeah. He, he has to do that so that the other Nazis don't catch on. That's right. Right. And um, the mother's poisoning her with tea or drinks or whatever. And she's all passed out and sick. And they come out of the shadows towards her. And they're silhouetted like a wedding couple. There's your mother and son Hitchcock motif right there, mm -hmm. you know. So gross. So interesting film. Well yeah. worth watching. Yeah, a lot of fun. Very much a period piece in a way, but it has a lot to say to us today, too. I think so. I think so.
Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of, uh, I hope students are still watching it because uh, there's a lot in there. So to our listeners, if you would like us to watch another Hitchcock film, let us know which one and uh, we'll see <laughs> if we can watch it. Yeah, please. Did you watch Ozark yet? Well, I, we watched a couple episodes. Yeah, I'm up to uh, about episode five. Yeah, you know, I, I have some cruel things to say about Ozark. I Uh-oh. think at this point, Ozark is all about having the maximum number of plot twists per episode. And that's really what it's all about. It's about going from one plot twist to another. And then how can the characters explain the plot twist? Um, And so it's very, very plot driven. And I think that the family is such a bankrupt family. Mm. Um, They might at one point have been dragged into their criminal endeavors, but at this stage of the game, I just don't have any empathy for for anyone in the family, with the possible exception of uh, uh, the youngest boy. Right, right. Well, that's how I feel out about all the greatest, uh, all these amazing TV shows, same as Breaking Bad. It's always the kids. And Sopranos, I always cared about the daughter and the son way more yeah. by the end of the series, because I think we're supposed to. So I, I don't know if I can to. watch any more Ozark. You know, I've oh, got I'm through a lot of it, it, but I... It's like, what else can they possibly do? Well, I guess I'm, yeah, I'm hoping that because this is the the last season and it's wrapping up, I'd like to see something. Are they going to make some kind of a metaphor for us to deal with? Because in a weird way, this family, we could look at it that even though we don't like them, they're kind of getting rid of some of the criminal elements in America, (laughs) slowly but surely, almost by coincidence, you know? That they're almost like when you get wrapped up with them, you're going to be dragged into the law enforcement culture um, or you're going to die. So I don't know. That would be a funny twist to me if that was a goal. Well, but they need the more twists, is, right? Because sometimes sure. you go a whole minute and a half without a plot twist. <laughs> I'm not sure that there is um, a viewpoint on Ozark. I'm really not sure. And it's so weird because I felt it so strongly with the Sopranos, so strongly with... Um, uh, I, I agree with you. I think that that's that. its biggest weakness is it doesn't yeah. have a viewpoint. Yeah, how does it compare to the Americans? The Americans did at least as much murder and plot change. But oh my God, it kept you vivacious with the, the sense of... Um, you, you could cared about them. I, I think it was a lot easier to care about the characters in the Americans. It's very difficult for me to care about any of the characters in, in Ozark. Yeah. And you know, it's like, well, I uh, care about in a way they've done this last season. Okay. It's different stuff that they've done, but it's so similar to, mm-hmm. Oh, we have to, we have to find some other plan so that we don't get killed by the Mexicans. Oh, we have to find some other plan or we're going to be in jail. We have to find some other plan. And, yeah. and they, you know, and it's, so it's all about, you know, plan, 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 and, and all these different shifts. Right. And then recover, the recover, recover, recover. Yeah. So cool. I, you know, I, I may be done with it. I might be done with yeah, it. Yeah, I'm going to watch the rest of it. I'm going to watch the rest of it. I'm going to watch the rest of Sex in the City, and I'm not loving it. Uh, there you go. But it's there. It's sitting there. I'm going to eat it. It's like the rest of the cake. Maybe it's okay. a little stale, but I'm going to finish it off. We're watching another one with fairly unlikable characters, and that's that's a show <laughs> called Billions. Oh, right. Right, with Damian Lewis as Bobby Axelrod, um, who even at a gala, he has like his name tag says Bobby. Axelrod, mm, as opposed to mm. Robert. Um, Paul Giamatti, an actor I quite like as Chuck Rhodes, a uh, mm-hmm. corrupt FBI agent. 
Maggie Siff as a psychiatrist slash performance coach slash dominatrix. Um, Asia, Asia Kate Dillon as the first non-binary character in a TV series, as mm. far as I know, mm. uh, mm. plays uh, Taylor Mason. And um, well, she's kind of robotic and wooden. Um, she does a nice job of it, I think. Uh, it's, you know, there's, we have a kind of strange fascination of life among among the 1%, among the ultra super rich and all their bad behavior. And it's like, maybe it's supposed to make us feel good because we can understand how corrupt they really are. Mm. Um, I'm having a bit of trouble really identify with any of these characters too much like Ozark. Mm. Um, there's also a ton of plot twists, but, yeah. um, but I haven't watched as many seasons of this one. So I've got maybe another season or so to, <laughs> before I get totally sick of this one. Plus Sheila really likes it. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're enjoying it with her or watched it with her at least. Well, yes, yeah, as much as you can enjoy a story about people whose whole raison d'etre is accumulating mass quantities of wealth. Right. Right. <laughs> You know, although apparently some plot lines in it were lifted from real life. Okay. And um, as well, there are some interesting lawsuits around that show. Um, <laughs> somebody has claimed that uh, Maggie Siff's character, she invented and that they hired her as a consultant for the show. Mm. And then she left the show and she didn't get any credit um, oh, well, for what was she... her ideas or she may have been paid as a consultant. Well, maybe. And, uh, and not that had a contract with your name. It went to court and um, she did not win. Mm. Uh, and there was another lawsuit involving um, an Indian band um, because there were comments made that suggested um, that there was illegal gambling and illegal oh. various illegal operations being run by this uh indian group indian band uh and they said oh you're making us look really bad and they sued and they lost too oh interesting so so there's some victory hmm. for i guess you could say artistic freedom over the sensitivities of people well, maybe they didn't have a case too or maybe they didn't have a case because i don't know enough about it to i don't either yeah really i don't say, except that i'm aware that that there were a couple lawsuits mm -hmm. And I think that series is still going without its main character. I think the last season, there were um, a plot decided by bad contract negotiations. <laughs> uh, Damian Lewis didn't want to do another season. Okay. And I guess they didn't offer him enough gravy to come back. Mm. So uh, he's not in the last season. And I don't know how mm. they handle that, mm. really. That can be good for a show, though, sometimes. Yeah. Sure. I mean, who knew that Cheers was going to be funnier when Shelley Long left? Well, true. Um, and sometimes it's a smart move in a yeah. series. Like I think of Homicide Life on the Street. Mm -hmm. uh, they changed up characters as they went through to try to freshen it up mm -hmm. and provide um, some new characters to learn about and make it continue to be interesting and not just the same procedural over and over and over. Right, again. right. Hmm. You know, I'm excited about Law and Orders coming out. What do you mean it's, Law and Order is coming well, out? Well, Law and Order ran for 19 years and then was canceled. It's now coming back. 
Which Law and Order? All of them? The Did original. The, the original. Okay, which With is the original? Sam that's not it. That's not SVU. That's uh, another one. Nope. Law and Order. Just straight Law oh, and just Order. Just Law and Order. Okay. SVU and Criminal Intent are offshoots of the original. Oh, law okay. Order. All right. So the original one's coming back with one of my favorite actors from Burn Notice, Jeffrey Donovan. So I'm pretty darn excited about that. I can't wait. I think it's in about two weeks. <laughs> I saw that Sam Waterston is in it. You know, he's oh, probably right. playing yeah, the yeah. DA again. So I'm really excited. The cast looks good. And um, by the way, we are not on Spotify anymore. Uh, we were on Spotify for a while. Not that we're going to make any kind of dent in the boycotting of Spotify or making them change their mind or anything like I that. I was just thinking about that but today, actually. We're not and on wondering Spotify. How the heck do we get off of Spotify? We're how, off. What, we're what did off. you have to do to... to, to... I, I just I just cancelled it. And okay. I cancelled it on my phone and I deleted the app on my phone too. Even though we're not even going to be a drop in the water, it's still the principle. So, so I think uh, when we publish this episode, I'll, I'll say, as I usually say in my blog post, find it, listen here, or find it at all the good podcast places. I can put in parentheses, yes. but no longer Spotify. That's right. Very well. Good Go deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, funny that it's three um, major performers that aren't even from the States doing that. You know what, Joe? And there, may, there uh, might be a lot more. Yeah, there it, might it, be, it could but steamroll. And you know, if enough people leave Spotify, their audience will leave too. And yes. they can they can keep their right wing podcaster and yeah. and no one will care. Yeah. I think their problem, you know, I was listening to Rogan and one of one of my very good friends said that it, he had some funny episodes. And um, so I thought I would listen, and some of it was really entertaining until I got to the part where I could see that covertly. He has co-opted the left-wing format, and there was a, you know, he has his own agenda, mocking, you know, everybody else. I liked him because he did mushrooms, and I thought, well, that's interesting. He's open to psychedelia. Apparently, he feels bad about what happened, but I don't, the problem is he's an attention he's, seeker. He's also said he's going to try to um, provide more balance in his podcast. Right, and that, that would be great if he does. I think the issue is, is that he is an attention seeker. He's addicted to having attention he's thirsty and so i don't know i don't think he's the worst player in the whole world i think there's some things that are interesting about him um but you know i don't that problem is i don't think he's a critical thinker enough i don't you know you can't do wrong by doing the right thing mark twain so he maybe needs to think about that and um yeah i hope i hope people sweat spotify out actually you know what the part is that bugs me and i shared that on our our social media is the meme that's going around about he gets a hundred million dollars or something and most musicians have to at least sell 350 songs before they get a dollar uh yeah why did they bring this asshole on i think for for someone like neil young or someone like i mean (laughs) i I don't know who's all on spotify but everybody that that's that kind of strata of yes there's yes. lots of downloads like rihanna of course that, of whoever course. you know um i think that there's for them because they have so many downloads the mm-hmm. measly little amount they get for each one adds up and is very lucrative but Absolutely. for for a band that might 
have sold in the era of records might mm-hmm. have sold a few thousand records and right. and when they trot those out at their performances at clubs they mm-hmm. can add to their income and actually do reasonably well mm-hmm. with right with spotify someone at that level can't they don't make anything no they make so little it, it's hardly even worth bothering and it's in true. a sense, the death of the record industry as we knew it from, I guess, Napster on has really, it's hurt the little guy a lot. It's hurt the, it's hurt the performers who tour clubs, who sell merch. Um, it's made it more and more difficult for those people to um, make a decent living playing music. But it's been fine for the people who are at the top strata of right, popularity. Right. The 1% of entertainment. Yes. If you will. Uh, yeah. And I mean, listen, all of those musicians, they, they, they make money. Most people buy merch, buy their t-shirts, buy their records, buy their CDs when they're on tour, because that really is, that's going right into their pocket. It, well, exactly. And, and I know that or for online, many years. Or online. Going, going out to places like Hughes Room and other clubs mm-hmm. to see the bands and performers I love. If they had something to sell, I always tried to buy something just for that reason. Because I know it's a tough game out there. And you, you know, know trying to there's make also, your living doing that. Yeah, there's also something great about going to see a concert and get yourself a t-shirt. You're, it's just the best feeling. That means you're like, it's almost like having a box of tissue in every bedroom, well, in every room of the house. You just, it's like high living. <laughs> and as well, when we used to go to a place like Hughes Room, you know, you go back to where they're selling the merch on the break mm-hmm. or at the end of the show. And most of the times the performers out there and will happily spend a few minutes with you. will signing will, a Chad, CD. We'll, we'll sign the mm-hmm. CD, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. it is you want, because that's their business. That's and right. also they care about the people who care about them. That's right. Um, and I think that that's a really positive kind of thing. But in today's music industry culture, it's squeezing that out. And it's mm-hmm. harder and harder mm-hmm. for, for people to make a go of it um, who aren't in that 1%. Mm-hmm. Agree. What are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking sparkling water with lime. Nothing nice. exciting. I got tequila. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just a little tiny shot of tequila. I <laughs> could have got alcohol. I didn't think of it. I know. I, a, I thought of it. I had I a beer at lunch. Stretched. Oh yeah, that was nice. Was I didn't nice. want to have any tea because I've been drinking tea at night because it's so delicious. And next thing I know, I can't sleep. Oh, you know what I've been drinking lately? Um, Sheila's birthday was recently, and happy birthday! Um, yes, uh, and uh, somebody gave uh, Sheila some bags of Vietnamese coffee ground mm. Vietnamese coffee and two cans of condensed sweetened condensed milk mm-hmm. uh, and and a fin just a little <laughs> metal thing to make your your Vietnamese yeah. coffee in and so I've been I've been drinking Vietnamese coffee and <laughs> normally I don't have coffee midday but mm. I've been making um, one of these um, Vietnamese coffees and taking it into my my little workshop uh, in the afternoon and I could tell you one blast of of that stuff between the sweetened condensed milk and the jet fuel coffee, I'm flying all afternoon. Right. I got to be careful because it's going to end the well-nurtured habit I've developed of taking an afternoon nap. (laughs) Because you can't nap on that stuff, man. No, you can't. No. (laughs) Oh, good. Yum. 
so hey we had a um we had an email okay we had an email and i don't have it up here but it was from our friend of podcast adam andia right emailed us to tell us that there is an equivalent to posca in greek cooking and they call it posca and it's it's greek easter bread and I had I no it. idea about that. I thought <laughs> that kind of Easter bread thing was specifically a Ukrainian tradition. Mm. But I guess there's that kind of thing in many cultures. It would be really interesting to explore that and, mm-hmm. and learn about how different cultures treat those so-called high holidays in right. terms of food history. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. And I thought it was good because I don't I don't even know if Shanila is writing about stuff food, but Hers has an egg inside of it. So I thought that was kind of cool with a magic surprise. Yes, and they dye the egg. Mm-hmm, even better. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I wonder yum, if yum. the Greek Pasca and the Ukrainian Pasca taste alike. I know they're both eggy, eggy, cakey breads. Like challah? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a little bit different, but so, similar in, in terms of texture and, and flavor, mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. say. Mm. for sure some people will oh. make their easter bread sweeter than sweet. others i mean i guess it depends yeah. on i don't know maybe Materials? where you're from yeah, or, or where you're from yeah. what trend you're having what trend is popular <laughs> yeah for sure it could be any of those what's things. available i i mean i feel like having some of that bread right now what about well, panettone oh panettone is also oh, super wonderful panettone. oh my god oh my god oh my god yes indeed so um I should just say to our listeners that we do appreciate the emails and we will read them out on the Mm -hmm. air or at least Mm -hmm. talk about them if we don't Mm -hmm. have them in front of us, which Mm -hmm. we're not always as prepared as Mm -hmm. we'd like to tell people we are. Adam, Andy, it was a pretty brief message, I will say. Brief but profound. And um, (laughs) And we we do do appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, we really do. Um, And you too can contact us here at the agency. Um, by emailing theagency.podcast at gmail.com. And you can tell us what you'd like to hear, what you liked, and and um, uh, what you have to maybe, maybe to add to previous shows. And have of you... course, for complaints, send them mm-hmm. to complaints at hotmail.com. <laughs> and listen, if there's some movie out there that you need this cutting edge analysis, please recommend it. And we'll, we'll try to watch it if we try can. to watch it and try to give you some, try to share, not give, but share some, uh, some of our some biting insight, some more biting insight. Yes. <laughs> Tie a scarf around that waist. Absolutely. Slut shaming and zebra tops. So I want to thank our, our listeners for tuning in. And I want to extend another big thank you to Pat and Possum for joining us today on the program. Uh, really made my day. <laughs> totally delightful people great musicians and it was very generous of them to spend some time with us today very nice thank you so much thanks for listening we'll be back at you next week bye